Do we need each other? So in spite of the cartoon on your bulletin, we need each other. You know, that's by God's design. And I can't imagine me and my life without the body of Christ to come alongside, encourage, and uh, help. And I just am so thankful for the church. It is a blessing in my life. I hope that as you grow, we're a blessing to one another. That is what the church is supposed to be. Hey, we have started the story, haven't we? And last week, we decided in, uh, that the main upper story was, in the beginning, God. It is His story. It's the upper story. He is our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, our restorer. And He's the author and we discovered last week that we're made in His image, which means we have the ability to have relationships. We have a will. We have a mind. We have emotions. I mean, a dog cannot appreciate the sunsets of Las Cruces, right? How many of you were afraid that your dog was going to go outside and look at the eclipse? I hope you didn't fall for that and buy them little glasses. No, God designed nature to understand uh, its limitations. But we were created to be in fellowship, to be in community. And in the garden, it was beautiful. It was perfect. It was pure. It was holy. There, there are four kinds of relationships, right? There is the relationship between you and God the relationship between you and others, the relationship, believe it or not, between you and you. Are you with me on that? You talk to yourself, don't you? Are you okay with yourself? Are you not okay? Is there something going on inside that your, your own relationship is messed up and needs Jesus? And then the last relationship is our relationship with creation. Do you know all of creation is groaning for the time when Jesus returns because it's going to be restored and it's going to be like it was in the garden. We're going to be able to touch a wasp and an asp and not get bitten. Children will pray, play with cobras and it's going to be okay. I'm longing for that time too. But what happened? Remember? Sin entered into our world because Adam and Eve did what? They doubted God's word. God said, you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Satan came along and said, ah, he's pulling the wool over your eyes. You'll just be like him. You can evolve. And it said, the script, that uh, scripture said that, oh, it looked good to her eyes. And Adam was standing right next to her. And then rebellion and death and disease and dysfunction came into our world. Sin was brought into it, and it changed nature itself. It changed our natures, that we have a sinful nature. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to say, mine, do you? Do you? No, they naturally are going to be rebellious. And this sin nature was passed on to Adam and Eve's children and to each successive generation. And the world got crazy violent, crazy evil, crazy bad. And what did God do? He found the most righteous man that he could, and that was Noah. And he judged the earth. He sent a flood. And there are over 200 cultures throughout the world that in their ancient history record that there was a global flood. Did you know that? That's historical evidence that there was a flood. Over 200 different cultures record a flood, a global flood in their history. And so 
Noah got onto the ark with his children, but what else got onto that ark? The sinful nature. So when he got off of the ark, what did we discover? It's not about our environment. Does our environment impact us? And we say absolutely. But you can't stand before God and say, well, I grew up in Compton, California, and that's why I became who I am. And I have an excuse. No, God wanted us to realize that something else was needed than just a change of venue or environment. We had to have something that came in and did what? Change the heart. Change the sinful nature. To be like it was before it was corrupted. And so, man could not be trusted to do the right thing and left to her own, the earth would again become corrupt as, as in the past. So God's going to implement his plan, not only to rescue us from our sin, but to actually give us a new nature, to be like Jesus. So he begins to build a nation in order to fulfill his promise of a redeemer and bring forth a second Adam, a deliverer, a restorer, a Messiah, a nation. So we're going to look at chapter 2 of the story, and it's about God building a nation. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground again, just like that's the way this is set up, but we're going to focus on some things that we can apply to our own life. Now, while God has his plan, the man of lawlessness has his plan, and his name is Nimrod. And Nimrod means rebellious or let's rebel. And his plan is to build a nation revolved around the Tower of Babel. So you have your Bibles with you or you have the story. Get to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Let me get there myself. And uh, let's just read the first few verses of chapter 11. It says, Now the whole earth was one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitch, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We'll just stop there for a moment. I want to show you some pictures up on the screen. I want you to realize that the Bible is rooted in history and it not mythology. That's the big difference between Christianity and any other religion. This is where they had settled or gotten off of the ark and settled right there. Now, God had told them, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and scatter over the earth. So, pretty easy command. Be fruitful, scatter all over the earth. You have to repopulate the earth. And what is the first thing that we're going to find? People said, oh, we don't want to do that. We're going to stay together. There was one language and they were all hanging out. Do the next slide. Just it's a it's going to kind of shrink in a little. So this is Iraq, modern day Iraq, and this is Ur of Chaldees. That's where Abraham's going to be called from. And you can't cut across the Arabian Desert. So anytime you want to go to Egypt or over to where Jerusalem is, you got to go up and around. It's a long distance. 
It's a long distance. Now, let's read about this guy named Nimrod. Uh, Go to Genesis chapter 10. Go back one chapter and let's read. Chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. It says um, Cush, so this guy's going to be a grandson of Noah, a great-grandson of Noah. Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Another translation, a warrior. He's a guy that's a fighter. He's a warrior. And then verse 9, it says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, Akkad, and Calne, and the land of where we just looked, Shinar. And from that land he went on to Assyria and built Nivea, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, and that is the great city. I want you to get a picture that this guy is like the king. He's the great warrior. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew, we're going to look a little closer. When it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, it means that he was a mighty warrior. And he's become a leader. And he has a kingdom. And he's going to build all these cities that are going to be part of his kingdom. But Dr. Henry Morris comments that before the Lord isn't a positive connotation. It can mean that he was in the face of the Lord. In other words, he challenged the Lord. The Lord said, scatter, and Nimrod said, I ain't going to do it. Now remember, this is just the great-grandson of Noah. There hasn't been that much time. Dr. Morris also went on and said, Nimrod became a mighty tyrant in the face of Jehovah. And they're going to build a tower or a ziggurat. And Babel, by the way, is the Hebrew spelling of Babylon. So let's go to the next slide. I want to show you what they're going to build. Nimrod wants to build one of these. Now he's, these are known as temples to worship the sun and the moon and the stars, the host of heavens. So it, it's only been three generations since Noah, who was found righteous in, in the eyes of God, he gets off of that boat and within three generations there's already rebellion in mankind because the sinful nature has to be addressed. Now this isn't a myth. In fact, I'll show you the next slide. This is over in Iraq. This is a foundation of a ziggurat or a tower that they would worship on and the name of this tower is called this, the foundation of heaven and earth. This may be the original Tower of Babel because it wasn't completed. Archaeologists do not think that it was completed and then torn down. They think that the building just stopped. Again, archaeological evidence for the validity of the Word of God. Now, historian Bill Cooper says this, Nimrod's name was perpetuated in its variants and he becomes known as the Assyrian god of war, the Babylonian king of gods, and the Sumerian uh, deity of Amutu. He even gets adopted by the Romans into their pantheon of gods. This guy is, is, is dead set against God. Now, why? 
What was the Tower of Babel? What it represented? Here are the three quick fill in the blanks. The Tower of Babel is about man's glory, right? Hey, look what I did. Sounds a little bit like humanism, doesn't it? I'm the great one. And it's about man's glory. And the next one, it's about man's kingdom. God said, I want you to disperse. Because when you all hang out together, well, let me put it this way. What happens when you take seven teenagers that are 15 years old and you just let them go loose? Good things or bad things? Is it better to sometimes separate teenagers? Have a good influence on them? Well, God says, I'm going to disperse you guys because you guys are all working together. And I love the irony of Scripture. They're saying, we're going to build a tower to heaven. And God says, I'm going to have to leave heaven. Your little tower is so small in order to see it. Uh, you'll have to read that in the text, but he's being funny. God is so funny. God's like, oh yeah, you're going to build a tower to heaven. I'm going to have to leave heaven in order to see it because it's so little, is what he's saying. And the last one is this. It's man's attempt at becoming God again. I'm going to sit on the throne of my heart, is what Nimrod said. <sighs> Boy, that comes a little close to home, huh? When we sit on the throne of our own heart. It sounds a little bit like Adam and Eve all over again. So God's going to do this incredible thing. He's going to confuse the languages. And all the building on the tower has to stop because they can't communicate. They can't get along. They don't know what each other's saying. And this is where God starts separating out people and our recessive genes start rising to the surface. And we start getting blue eyes and white skin and a hitchhiker's thumb and your ear. Some of your ears are connected and some have the floppy thing. Okay? If you have the floppy thing, you're a recessive gene. There are 32 recessive genes. And suddenly, God has created a world that has all sorts of different ethnic groups. By His design, He loves ethnicity. The irony... Well, Satan's always trying to thwart the plan of God and also the love of God. Now that God has thwarted the plan of mankind by confusing all the languages, I want you to see these three things in God's upper story. Three things that just speak about his heart towards our heart. Number one is this. God's nation that he's going to build is going to be built on truth. That's the fill in the blank. Not lies, not deceptions. Not like Satan, you will not surely die. And God begins to reveal himself to a man named Abram, like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. And God begins to reveal his glory, the opposite of the Tower of Babel where it was about man's glory. God's going to start revealing his glory, and God's going to find Abraham. Now, I don't have to show you the map again, but Abraham is living where the Tower of Babel used to be. And Scripture says that his ancestors were guilty of worshiping the, the, the idols, the, the starry host of heaven. So realize that, that God finds a man without a perfect history. He finds a man that is willing to believe in him, even if his mom and dad and relatives are worshiping the stars and the moons. 
Because man looks on the outside, but God's going to look where? He looks at the heart. So he finds Abram. I don't know how many men he had to go through to find Abram. But he found somebody in idolatry, uh, idolatrous culture, and he says, you're the guy. And he uh, reveals himself, and he says, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your dad, your relatives, everything you have. Just take your wife, and I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. And Abraham says, okay, I believe. I believe a little because I'm hedging my bets because he doesn't go by himself. God says, go by yourself. He says, I'm going to take my nephew Lot and I'm going to take my dad and I'm going to take a bunch of stuff. And he gets stuck halfway in Haran. So God told him to go to the land of promise and he got halfway. Have you ever gotten halfway with one of God's promises? Yeah. And then his dad dies and God shows up again and says, okay, Abram. Dad's dead. I want you to follow me to the land I want to show you. Because God's building a nation. It's going to be built on truth, his glory, and his promises. And so um, that's the second fill in the blank. God's nation is going to be built on his promises. God's going to build a nation on his strength. And God's going to be faithful like he was in the garden. And God's going to be the king and the ruler and the master, like in the garden. Cause, and God is a God of covenants and agreements, and he's going to be faithful to them. In fact, there are four I wills in Genesis, and I'll just read it to you. It says God's going to build a nation. It's going to be great. He's going to make Abraham's name great, and he's going to be a blessing. God's going to bless anyone that blesses Abraham is going to get blessed, and anybody that curses Abraham is going to get cursed. But here's the best thing of all. He says to Abraham, through your child, I am going to bless the entire world. Who is that child? And you all said Jesus. See, God had to start with a nation. First he had to find a man, and he's going to build a nation. And from that nation... He's going to bring forth the Messiah. And so he makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless every ethnic group in the world through you. What an honor. Now, Abraham and Sarah are old. Now, Charles, you're 89 years old, right? You're 89. God bless you. Do you know that Abraham's going to be 100 years old and Sarah 90 when the promised child comes, could you imagine Charles having a son in, in 11 years? <laughs> no. Stella? No, right? God's nation's going to be built on truth. It's going to be built on his promises. But here's the kicker. This is where it comes into play. Here's the very last fill in the blank. God's nation, well, not the last, but God's nation will be built on faith. See, Adam and Eve, they doubted God. But this nation is going to be about trusting God like it should have been in the garden. Are you noticing a theme here? God wants it to be like it was in the garden for us. His purpose of chasing after us is not to spank us. How many of you have thought in your one time that God is after you to spank you? Oh, I thought, oh, he wants to take me to the woodshed. No, God doesn't really have a woodshed. God chases you to restore you 
to redeem you, to heal you, to transform you. Boy, when we get that wrapped around our mind that God is for us and He wants to heal us and restore us and renew us to be like it was in the garden, that will blow your mind. So we're introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But it's not until years later that we read that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Adam and Eve, they doubted God. Abraham believed God. I'm so glad that God is patient with us as we learn to trust him. Now, could you imagine you're 100 years old and you're told by God you're going to have a child and your wife is 90 years old, you've been married for probably 80 years and she hasn't had a child yet. And it was customary in that culture to take a slave and allow the slave to be the surrogate mom. Sarai is thinking, I can't get pregnant. I have no control over that. Here, sleep with my Egyptian maid. Good old Abraham, stupid man. You can say that in church. Stupid man. What did he do? He said, okay, I'll go sleep with the 20-year-old. And guess what? The 20-year-old, I'm guessing she's 20, but she's of child-rearing years, and he gets her pregnant, and God comes along and says, hey, you did that on your own strength. That isn't me. I didn't cause that. You're going to have a, a child, a child of promise, but it's going to come through Sarai, your wife, who's 90. Well, what about Ishmael? I love Ishmael. He's... No, he is a child of a slave. Your child is going to be a child of the promise. Do you see that? Do you know in Hebrews it says that both women represent two covenants? Do you know Muslims today, the religion of Islam, claim Ishmael as the head of their religion? Do you know the prophecy of Ishmael? The prophecy in the Bible says, Ishmael, you're going to be a mighty nation and you are going to be a wild man and your hand is always going to be against your brother. And who's his brother? Isaac. Do we still have conflict today between Muslims and Jews? Can you say, yes, we do. It's a prophecy. And it's, I don't care how much money we throw at the Middle East. Is it going to solve the problem? No. Who is the problem solver? Jesus. Everybody had Jesus, we, we wouldn't have any problems. Well, we'd have, you know, Mondays still, but we wouldn't have any problems, right? Ishmael wasn't God's plan. Now, how many times do we take matters into our own hands, too? And we try to force an issue. And you make little Ishmaels in your life. And then those little Ishmaels come back to haunt you. The best thing to do is trust in God. God said He's going to give a promised child. Trust Him. I know that every time I try to take matters into my own hands, it doesn't work out very good. It just doesn't. Oh, I know what I need to do. I need to divorce Tammy. I need to, I need to uh, go buy a Maserati because it's going to make me feel better, right? 
No, I'll buy a Porsche. It's going to make me feel better. You know, I'm empty inside, so I'm going to go look at pornography because that's, that's how God's going to fill me. No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And we run around and we run around and we do things in our, like the Tower of Babel in our own strength, for our own glory, for our own comfort. And all we do is wind up worshiping not Jesus. But when we just say, God... I'm struggling, but I'm trusting in you. Remember the song that we sang? Those who wait upon the Lord, their, their strength is going to be renewed. I don't know each and every one of your lives, but I know this promise. When we trust, that's that faith element, in God, He's the one that's going to deliver. Maybe not in our timing, but He is the faithful one. He is the faithful one. Now, Abraham's going to be put to the test, isn't he? He sent Ishmael away. When Ishmael turned 13, he, he, he got sent away. So now there's just Isaac. And when Isaac, I don't remember what the text said or even if it tells us, but Isaac's still a young man, and God says, I want to test Abraham. Abraham, Abraham! I want you to take your only son, that's interesting, his only son, and I want you to go to the place I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him. What did Abraham do? Did he hedge his bets like he did before? Did he, did he try to do things in his own strength? He's got some wisdom now. He gets up early in the morning. He takes some servants. He takes his son. He takes the fire. So you've got to travel with fire. Maybe they didn't have the ability to make fire, but they're traveling with the fire, and he's, and he's got a knife with him, and they're walking along a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah, isn't it like God? Historians think that Mount Moriah is the exact place where Jesus was crucified. So he takes his son, his only son, and he binds him on an altar, and he's about to kill Isaac, and God stops him and says, Whoa, 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 whoa. You passed the test. Now that I know that you would not withhold your only son, your beloved son, I know your heart is mine. Isn't it interesting that God gave his only son? And so he stopped Abraham from killing Isaac, but God himself allowed Jesus to be killed so that we might have forgiveness and enter in, back into the garden. So how does God build a nation? We're wrapping it up. First of all, is on his truth, on his promises, on faith in him. And the red thread of redemption is throughout the story. God uses imperfect people. Do we have any imperfect people here? Matt, are you imperfect? Gina, this is your opportunity to say amen really loud and everybody will be good with it. Yes, amen. Are any of you broken? Any of you flawed? I'll use a more modern word. Are any of you dysfunctional? You know what dysfunction means? It just means you're not functioning in the way God designed you to be. 
Some of us have coping devices that aren't healthy. And we stuff them inside our heart trying to make us feel better temporarily. And God says, get rid of that. God is your coping device, isn't he? So we are broken. We are flawed. We are dysfunctional. We are imperfect people. But that's who God loves And when we trust Him, He comes in and starts making the changes. I've said this before, been married 33 years, that's nice. Not as long as Charles and Stella, but Tammy, am I a better husband because of Jesus? Yes. Are you a better wife because of Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. See, Jesus comes in and starts making this change. And even though we don't live in the Garden of Eden, we don't run around naked at home, but I'll tell you what, the relationship is beautiful. Not on our own strength, not because of our own Tower of Babel, not because of our own glory. We can't take any credit for it. Jesus gets all the credit. So God uses imperfect people, broken people, flawed people, dysfunctional people who trust in Him to fulfill His promises. That means you're part of His program. You're part of His story. Isn't that exciting? You're not just some extra that's in a movie that gets paid $5 for being background. You're not background music. You're not background characters. You're part of the story. So leave your Tower of Babel, your own efforts to achieve happiness. Stop trying to live in your own strength. Stop trying to be in control, trying to be your own God, trying to orchestrate things, manipulate things, tell people only what you think they need to hear or want to hear so you can pose. No posers. You know what I mean by posing? You're a pretender that the real you doesn't actually show up every, uh, maybe every once in a while. You know, when you pretend through life, you're not ever going to be happy, are you? Let Jesus come in and change that. Put your trust in Jesus. Have faith in the God who loves you. I'm glad you don't even have, you don't have to be perfect. You don't even have to be pretty. Amen. You don't have to be pretty. You just have to have faith. And all it has to, to be is muy poquito. Did I say that right? Muy poquito. Enough faith to trust in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That God will take you where you're at He will pick you up, He will clean you off, and He will set you on this path to become just like Him. And you'll start taking inventory of your life. In fact, we're about to go into communion. And it's a great time to take inventory of your life. It's a great time to get quiet in your spirit and say, Jesus, I love you. Teach me to love you more. Jesus, I have a little faith, muy poquito faith. I want you to have grow my faith that one day I would trust you beyond the shadow of a doubt and that you love me can you say that with me Jesus loves me 
You know, we teach that song to little children, don't we? How many of you sang that song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. 